welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today's edition is called Captured by Love, Love Stories of Vietnam War POWs. And uh, from one with us today, my guest today um, is Lee Ellis, who is, in fact, uh, a POW from the Vietnam War. Uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you on, Lee. Um, it's amazing that uh, you know what a what a how fabulous that you survived. And um, let me tell my audience a little bit about you. Well, first of all, Lee is the founder and president of Leadership Freedoms and Freedom Star Media. He's an award-winning author. Um, more specifically, to get to his POW career. He served as an Air Force fighter pilot flying 53 combat missions, 53 combat missions over North Vietnam. In 1967, he was shot down and held as a POW for more than five years in Hanoi and surrounding camps. For his wartime service, he was awarded two silver stars, the Legion of Merit, the Bronze Star with Valor device, the Purple Heart and POW Medal. And when he um, was uh, no longer a POW, he returned to his Air Force career and had uh, positions of increasing responsibility, and he retired as a colonel. He's authored uh, or co-authored five books. The um, one before the one we're going to be talking about is Leading with Honor, Leadership Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton and it's received multiple awards. The book that we're talking about today is Captured by Love. Um, and this is the story of 20 couples who were POWs. Well, the man, at least, was a POW. And the, the different, um, each of them had a unique story of love. And what's interesting is that they are married long after still today in other words well lee welcome to the show and um before, before we get into your book and and uh, all of that just um why don't you tell us what it was like uh being a pow you know uh there's there, we used to have a saying some days you get the bear and some days the bear gets you and that's kind of the way it was in those early years, especially because the communists were really, uh, they, they would torture us. They wanted some propaganda or to break you, to get you willing to cooperate with them and, uh, and just uh, share military information. Of course, most of us had none. Uh, we didn't learn about the target until the day of flying, and most of us were not involved in any high-level military decisions, but they wanted to break you to make sure that you uh, obeyed the camp regulations, which said you wouldn't communicate with anybody else and you'd do everything they told you to do and cooperate with them. 
in our course, we had six articles in the Code of Conduct which said we'd be faithful to our country, to our teammates and comrades, and we would resist the enemy and not collaborate with them. So it was a battle every day. But, you know, we were well-trained. And the thing was, one of the most important things, that we had covert communication to encourage each other and to tell each other what happened. And people were very honest. Here's what happened to me. And I suffered, and but I finally gave in, and I gave them A, B, and C, but none of it was true, or it wasn't anything that was going to be of value to them. And then you bounced back because they would come after you again. The great thing was that we had such incredible leaders, uh, people who were born in the mid-20s that were the three senior leaders there, and they had uh, fought in Korean War fought in the Vietnam War, they were senior leaders there, and they were courageous, they were uh, humble, and I don't know how humble they were before they got captured, but they were humble there, but they were always bounced back, and they set such a great example for us, and they created a culture that really helped us band together and fight back and stay hooked together and connected so that we could be resilient and come home with honor. Wow. That must have, did you have injuries or illnesses? You know, I was so fortunate when I ejected, my airplane blew up over enemy territory and it blew into several pieces, but the canopy, the cockpit stayed intact rather than the cockpit. And my teammate and I, there were two of us in the F-4 Phantom. The Navy had F-4 Phantoms, the Marine Corps and the Air Force. We all had that same airplane. And uh, we both ejected and we both... uh, got good parachutes, and we both, actually, they caught him on the ground before he did his parachute landing fall, we're trained to do, they caught him, and uh, with me, I did my parachute landing fall, and they surrounded me, the militia did, within uh, two minutes, and captured me, and tied my hands, put a blindfold on me, put a rope around my neck, and led me from village to village until the Communist Party told them what to do, and to bring me further north into a a holding camp about halfway to Hanoi from where I was captured. And then we were there for three or four days, or I was there for four days and caught up with my teammate and a couple other guys. And then they took us from there to Hanoi, where we went to the infamous Hanoi Hilton, which was actually a prison built by the French in the 1890s. It was occupied the entire block, and it was the Maison Centrale, which was their city jail that was converted into a POW camp also. Were you by any chance with McCain at any time? Well, I was toward the end, but we were in the same camp several times. I was captured 11 days after him. He was captured in October, and I was captured November the 7th of 1967. So I learned about him through covert communication, and we had been in the same camp. Then we were in different camps for a couple of years, and then we came back in the same camp, and uh, he was in a couple of uh, rooms over in in a big part of the camp that we came back to in 1970. And then after the agreement was signed, they put us in separate camps based upon when we were captured because the agreement said the protocol to the Paris Peace Accords that was signed in January 73 said that we would be released over a period of 60 days in groups accordance with our, in according with our shoot down, except sick and wounded first. So 
McCain and I came out on the same airplane, March 14th, 1973. Huh. Wow. So, yes, yeah, so that's why you're saying, so, yes, this is the 50th anniversary. That's right. This is the 50th anniversary. We just had our 50th reunion out at the Nixon Library. Uh, and May the 24th, we had a, a banquet, exactly the same food and service that we had at the White House on May the 24th of 1973. So that was um, that was really a very exciting and a fun thing and uh, brought back a lot of memories, you know. And here we are 50 years older, and some of us have passed on. But we, um, we're brothers, and we enjoy being together. And over the years, we've gotten to know each other's wives. And um, at those reunions, that's where I kept hearing these stories. I knew the guys, and the ones that were married, I kept hearing stories about their wife and all, but a few stories. But over the years at reunions, I kept I met their wives and got to know them. And one day, I, about eight, six or eight years ago, I said, you know, I'd written several books, and I said, Hollywood couldn't write a script this crazy and wild. Somebody needs to write a book. And I was busy finishing a book in 2020, and then I realized we were getting so old. I'm the, about the youngest guy that was there more than five years. And so we're getting old, and we're starting to die off, and we better get this book done. So I hired Greg Godak, who lives out in California, but he was a romance writer and had been very successful with his book, A Thousand and One Ways to Be Romantic. So I hired him to help me because uh, being writing romantically was probably not my best thing. I've written books, but not that. And so he was a big help, and we interviewed the couples and taped them on Zoom videos. And uh, a couple of them, the couple, uh, one couple had passed away, but they had an incredible story. And so we worked with their son, who had kind of written uh, a journal about his parents and stepmother because his uh, his mother had died while his father was a POW. So that story was just amazing. And But the stories, uh, we worked with the families to get those stories in the book. Uh-huh. So that I was that was going to be one of my first questions, like, well, how did you get the idea to, to do it? So when you were having these uh, reunions, I mean, was it you were struck by the fact that there was that these love stories were so powerful and that, um, yeah. Yes. They were so powerful because many of these women, husbands went down in 1965, 66, 67, 68. And so their husbands were gone five, six, seven, eight years. And they were back home raising children and dealing with, in some cases, they didn't know if their husband was dead or alive, was a prisoner of war, POW, or MIA, missing in action, which means he's missing, but we don't know if he's dead or not. And yet, these women did such a fantastic job. They were told to keep quiet by our government. That kind of came from the State Department over to the Defense Department in 1965, 66. And then, uh, by 1968, uh, Sybil Stockdale was living in, out there in California and down in San Diego, and she and some of the wives were talking, and they said, you know, our government's policy of keep quiet is not working. Our men are being tortured. We know that. And we don't even know, in many cases, whether they're dead or alive. But North Vietnam, the communist government there, signed the Geneva Conventions that said that 
captives would be treated lean and humanely, and they would be identified. And they hadn't done that, and we need to put pressure on them. And they got Ross Perot and others from their hometowns to help them, and they started traveling to Paris and confronting the Paris delegation, the diplomats from North Vietnam, and some of them traveled to many more neutral countries around the world and met with their government people and also the communist diplomats that were there to put pressure on them. And, for instance, Phyllis Galani, who was the head of the uh, League of Wives and Families in Virginia, very shy lady, she stood up and took the lead, and she got 750,000 letters and took them to Paris and confronted the Paris delegation with them. So they got PR uh, to confront the communists around the world. Well, the communists don't like to look bad. And so in 1969, when Ho Chi Minh died, that was the communist founder and leader of North Vietnam, within six weeks, the new leadership stopped the torture. And we, our, our, our lives totally changed. And over the years, within about a year, there was a situation that caused them to move us into large cells. And now we went into cells of 40 to 60 guys huh. for two years with no torture. So we had really time to get healthy because of what those wives had done. Huh. Wow. Um, so when did you meet your wife? Did, you, were you already married when you were a prisoner of war? No, I was a single guy, and I've, I've always been well-connected to girls. I didn't have any sisters, and so I had a lot of friends who were girls in high school and college, and I dated a good many of them, but didn't fall in love, and then uh, we're still good friends, by the way, and then when I came home, I dated girls for a year, and fantastic, beautiful, lovely, sweet gals, and we had a great time, but they weren't the one. I didn't fall in love with them, and they didn't fall in love with me. And then I moved, I got qualified for, re, re, for flying again, and again, and I became a instructor pilot and went back to Valdosta, Georgia, where I'd gone through flight school. And within eight weeks, Memorial Day weekend on Friday night at the officer's club, two girls walked in, and I told the guy sitting there with me, I said, I'll see you later. I'm going to go dance with her. Uh-huh. And so we started dating, and Within uh, six or eight weeks, I think we both had a pretty good idea this was the one. We've been married 48 and a half years now. Oh, wow. That's, <laughs> that's a great story. So, okay, so tell us about um, some of these love stories, like what, you know, um, the ones where they were married beforehand or where, yeah. you know, what, did, mm-hmm. did any single guys... Well, I guess it wasn't really a situation where you could um, meet girls once you were a POW, right? No, we didn't know the girls, the single guys, I don't think. Well, there were actually, there's a guy who's not in the book, and I didn't know this till later, but he uh, he wanted to meet her. He got some leave, and he was going to go to Hawaii on, uh, for an R&R out of the combat zone. And his girlfriend, he wanted her to meet him there, and her he was a colonel. She was a colonel's daughter, and he said, "No, you're not married to him. You can't go stay with him in Hawaii." She said, "Okay, we'll get married," and they did. And then he got shot down right after she came back home. Uh, but there were two of people that were engaged, and uh, their girlfriends waited one 
uh, almost six years and one seven and a half years. They got married and stayed married until actually the wife died first. They were married for 30, 40 years. The wife died, and then both of their husbands had met and married. And it's amazing. These love stories are just incredible. You know, it's what's so interesting is that um, that relationships today, (laughs) uh, they they don't last two weeks or six weeks, no less six years, you know? Yeah, Um, yeah. People are so, now that there's uh, online dating, people are just, anytime there's a little problem, they just, uh, you know, say, forget about it and then go online again and, and and find somebody else. Um, th- those are they really are real love stories. Uh, I think I think it's very interesting at this time when when the, when relationships aren't lasting long, when everything seems um, expendable, disposable. You know, um, I think it it's will be good or is good. Um, well, the book hasn't come out yet. It's coming out in August, right? No, it just came out on May the 30th, and it was a bestseller in two categories on launch day with pre-sales, and it's going well right now. Uh, So, you know, it's interesting because it's so uh, appealing to so many areas. Older people love the book. I had an 84-year-old guy whose uh, wife died a year and a half ago, and he called me and he said, Lee, this is, and he was a POW five and a half years too, he said, this is the best POW book I've ever read and probably the best book I've ever read. And I thought I would have never expected that from him. But several of the guys, guys like the book, even though it's a romance book, because there, there's some war stories in there and there's some history in there. And I think the, the level of commitment of the couples uh, kind of rings a bell with people. What happened was, I think that the POWs who were there five to eight years and not short work, uh, we learned a lot about, we already knew a lot about, learned more. We also were locked up with people who were similar to us and different, and we had to get along with them. Wait a minute, I'm trying, you you said you learned a lot about what? Did you, I could, that, you kind of uh, missed a word here. Okay, I'm sorry. Yes, we learned a lot about resilience and how to and commitment. And we were so committed to our mission and to each other. And when you're locked up with people 24 hours a day, can you imagine 52 guys in a six in an 1800 square foot room with no walls in it uh, for two years being locked up? Well, you get to know them, and you can't pretend. You have to accept them for who they are, and they accept you for who you are, and you celebrate the things that they're good at and don't worry about the things they're not good at. And that really helped us, I think, understand relationships. By the way, one of the chapters, one of the stories in there, uh, the couple, he's 91 now, she's about 86, and she was a widow. Her husband got shot down and didn't come home, and she didn't know that. He was not coming home for five and a half years, six years. And he didn't come home, and she was we came home, I, who's a longtime roommate of mine and a war hero, he came home and his wife had said, I'm moving on. I'm out of here. I think their relationship was not the best. So they divorced. And two months after we got back, he met this widow 
And uh, they were both strong personalities, but they've been married uh, about almost 49 years. And their story is called Independent and Interdependent. And I think that's a powerful mindset for couples. You've got to be independent. You can't reinvent yourself, but you also learn to adapt and be interdependent. And that's big part of their story is how they learn to adapt and uh, celebrate each other and not try to control each other, let each other be each other. But they were so committed to each other that they adapted to make each other happier. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and you're saying so that that was kind of like what you learned being in this big room with all these people and, and adapting to them. Yes, exactly. And you had to be authentic. Uh, you had to be one of the things that being locked up for month, days, months, years, there are lots of times when you sit there and think about your past life and what was good and what was bad and what did you do well and what could you have done better. And I think all of us replayed some of that and thought, you know, I probably could have done a better job. I know for me, uh, I had, uh, after about four months and being there and I didn't any longer have any nightmares about fighting hand to hand combat with the enemy. One night I had this dream that I was in the ninth grade science class. Miss Jordan was our teacher and this is real. And in the dream, she walked over to me. Well, first of all, my mom was a school teacher. And so I was raised around education and all that. Miss Jordan walks over to me and puts her hand on my shoulder and looks down at me and in a sweet, nice way, but seriously says, Lee, if you would just do your homework, you could be a good student <laughs> because I was an athlete and I didn't, a little bit ADD and I didn't care about, you know, if they gave us 10 problems or 10 questions to answer, I'll do five of them and say, well, why should I do any more? I got other things to do. <laughs> but that turned out to be one of the most important things that ever happened to me because I thought about that day after day. And finally I said, Lee, if you ever go back to school, if you have a responsibility, you do your homework. You don't put it off. You do your homework. And now, a guy who never wrote but one or two papers in college, I've written six books now. <laughs> if you told my teachers and my mother that, they would laugh at you. <laughs> huh. So, so you've been doing your homework. <laughs> um, yes, I have. I uh, I'm a hard worker. <laughs> um, now, going back to McCain for a minute, did what was his status when he was there? Was he already married? He was married and had one or two children, I think. And uh, his wife had had a bad wreck just before he came home, and she almost killed her. But she it broke her leg, and she couldn't walk. And he. He got injured badly when he ejected over Hanoi. He ejected at the last minute, and his airplane was rolling at high speed, and it broke his leg and both his arms when he ejected. So he almost died, and probably would have, had they not found out his father was an admiral, and they saw him as being valuable, so they they did some uh, medical work to keep him alive, and he lived through it. In fact, uh, two guys that were cellmates kind of nursed him uh, along with a, a little bit of health care they gave him back to life, and he made it through. But his uh, first wife, for some reason, I don't know what it was, but they did not uh, get along. You know, McCain was a, 
he had a lot of good characteristics, but he was a little bit wild and woolly. And uh, I think that after what she had gone through, uh, I just don't know that they could work it out together. So they divorced and he remarried. Huh, huh. But she waited, she waited at least as long until, until he came home. Yes, she did. She I met her after we came home. Uh-huh. Huh. Yep. Well. There was, I, there were just so many, you know, some of the single guys, two of them, uh, and several others actually, but two of them in the stories married, uh, I met a gal who had been wearing their bracelet with their name and shoot down date on it that they didn't know. And, uh, they fell in love and got married. One of them will be married 50 years this fall. And they're just a fantastic couple. They have a great family. And one of their sons graduated from the Naval Academy already. And there's a doctor in the Navy. They just have a, a great story. And, uh, his Wait, name I is Bill Bailey. That. I didn't really understand that. How were they wearing their bracelets? Well, uh, there were two college girls and an advisor for Viva Voices in Vital America, which was kind of a uh, veterans uh, support group that took on the POWs to support them. And two college girls were talking to them one night and one of the POW MIA wives whose husband didn't come home and her story's in the book and this story's in there, but they were talking and this congressman from California had on a bracelet that some Vietnamese uh, natives had made and they were looking at it and talk about it. And one person said, well, why don't we make a bracelet and put the POWs and the MIA's name on it and their shoot down date to remember them by so we don't forget them. And somebody said, well, that's a good idea. And one of them's husband was a, a jeweler uh, it worked in that area and they made uh, a couple of hundred bracelets and everybody said, that's a good idea. Well, they sold, I think it was four or 5 million bracelets, 250 wow. each. And they raised money for that, uh, not for profit, but many, many people brought, bought bracelets for 250 each and wore them. And if you wanted to reach out to the family of the person's name, you sent it to Viva Voices in Vital America and they would put the family in touch with you. And so she reached out to James Bailey's family, and the family said, yes, his, he goes by Bill, Bill Bailey, but uh, he's single, and this gal was a Pan Am stewardess, flight attendant back then, and she started thinking about him and praying for him every day, and when he came home, uh, she sent him a telegram and said, I'm so glad you're home, I've been thinking about you. And she said, he said, where are you? She said, well, I'm based in London. I'm a Pan Am stewardess. And he said, well, I'm coming to Europe uh, in a couple of weeks to go on a vacation over there. And so she said, well, well, let's see each other. So he went to London. He was in Ireland. They went down to London to uh, meet her in her apartment. Her roommate was there and let him in. And uh Susie got delayed in New York because of bad weather. Well, she came in a couple of three hours after he did. She opened the door and watched him, and he ran over. He's six foot four, grabbed her, hugged her, and spun her around, uh, pulled her off her feet, spun her around in 360, and they started hugging and talking. And an hour later, her cellmate, her roommate was in the kitchen with her and said, you're going to marry that guy? And she said, oh, no, we're just going to be friends. Well, Two weeks later, uh, 
she said he was going to still in Europe. And she said, you know, he said, I'm in Paris. You want to come over and see me over here? And she said, yeah, I've got two days off. I'll be there. So she flew into Paris and he proposed to her at the Eiffel Tower. Oh, and wow. she said, yes. And she said, I brought my uh, birth certificate so we can get married now. He said, no, we're not going to get married now. Wait till we go back home and we're going to be have a wedding where my parents can be there. <laughs> They've missed too much of me already because he had been a POW almost six years. And they, they're the ones that have been married 50 years this fall. Incredible. That's a great story. Did you say there was another one, a second woman who was wearing a bracelet? Yes, and I'm trying to, I got to think who that was. Uh, there were several of them that were wearing bracelets. Oh, Bobby. Bobby Gaither was uh, a flight attendant also. And uh, she had gotten married, and uh, I don't remember if she was still a flight attendant, but she had been. And Ralph Gaither was a Navy pilot, came home. He'd been a POW seven and a half years, and uh, he had been written poems about the girl he's going to meet someday. He had prayed about the girl he's going to meet someday. And so he comes home, and Bobby Gaither, who's uh, the, uh, the flight attendant down in Miami, uh, her uh, friend was a hairdresser, and her hairdresser said, well, I've been wearing this POW bracelet. You need to get one. So she got one. Well, it was Ralph's cousin, because Ralph grew up down near Miami. And so she got a Ralph Gaither bracelet, too. Well, when they came home, she said, well, you need to, I'm going to set you up with a date with Ralph. And she said, really? She said, yeah. So they had a date, and on the first date, he reached over and held her hand and leaned over and kissed her on the cheek. Oh, they both had Corvettes, by the way. They both had Corvettes, so they were alike in that way, but they were very different. Anyway, he proposed to her uh, a few weeks later, and they got married that fall. This was in, this was in um, February, March, April of 73, and they got married a few months later. Oh, wow, that's romantic, too, huh? Yeah, uh, it's just uh, amazing the commitment and the um, the way they worked it out to each of these couples worked it out together. And uh, even though they had problems and some of those are in the stories, we, uh, most all the stories have a problem that the couple had, but they figured out how to work it out. You know, this we're committed to each other. You're a person that I really respect and I care about, and we're just going to work it out and make it work. And they did. That's the you know, and and they were more um, they were more able and more determined to work it out because of you know the bigger problem that they that the man had had at least being a POW. Yeah, um, yeah. And you kind of you know you look at the fate with like with the ones who, you know, like which um, which bracelet they got, you know, how that was fate in terms of direction. Yeah. It was. It was unreal the way that happened. It sure was. And that's why I said, you know, Hollywood couldn't write a script uh -huh. <laughs> this this true, this accurate. You know, it's amazing. I just I kept hearing these stories. And here's another one. Here's another quick one. So one lady, in fact, she was one there where the bracelets were decided on and invented. Her husband had gone down. He was a Marine helicopter pilot. He'd been missing for years, and when, he, when we came home, he didn't come home, and he'd been gone six years missing. And so they declared him killed in action, KIA, uh -huh. that he was okay. dead. 
the government declared he's no longer missing in action. He is now KIA killed, and he was killed. He didn't come home, so he is dead. Yes. So she had waited on him, knowing that that might happen, but he might come home, and he didn't. So when they said that, her mother uh, told her that there was uh, Ross Perot and a bunch of folks through this big party at the um, Cotton Bowl in Texas. Thousands of fans were invited. Bob Hope was the host and had a stage down on the field. And there were more than 30,000 people there that night. And a lot of the POWs, we were all invited there. And a lot of them took dates. And uh, the married ones had their wives. Well, this guy went with a friend, took a friend as a date, and there was a lady, this lady whose husband didn't come home was there. She didn't want to go, but her mother said, you need to go. So she was there sitting next to the guy whose wife had divorced him when he came home. And so she, Tony Orlando and Don are singing the tiny yellow ribbon song, you know, around the old oak tree, if you still love me. And this guy's coming home from prison. And that was a number one song when we came home. Mm-hmm. And so Tony Orlando and Don are on stage singing this song. And tears started coming down her face because her husband didn't come home. Yeah. And this guy, his wife, he came when he called her from the Philippines after we were released. She said, hey, I'm out of here. They didn't have any children. He says, I, don't, I want a divorce when you come home. Oh, wow. And he was disappointed, but he was happy to be free. Well, he's sitting there next to her, and he leans over and kisses her on the cheek, and they started talking. Well, they started dating, and out of just pure empathy for each other, they started dating, and a few months later, he invited, he asked her to marry him, and she said yes, and they have been married for 48 years. Oh, wow. And he's uh, 87, and she's uh, probably 84 or so. These are beautiful stories. And, and you know, yeah. that they, they're living so long in each of these stories. It's amazing, especially with the men who went through such torture, you know, um, to still be living this long. Well, you know, this month is PTSD Awareness Month. And tomorrow is PTSD Awareness Day. And so what has happened is we are uh, we have done a lot of the, the the Air Force initially did follow up health and mental illness uh, studies with their POWs, but after about four or five years, the Navy became the prime owner of all of that. So we've been going to the Pensacola to the Naval Medical Institute down there for many years, and they keep records. And part of that is we get tested psychologically, and they track us. And our PTSD rate is much lower than combat veterans who fought one year in the South. And there's no question that if we come home early before the torture shock, we would be in really bad shape with PTSD. But because we were locked up with people who had been there longer than we had and gone through worse than we had, and we're able to talk about it every day in that community, we came home very healthy, and our PTSD rate is very low, and we are living our peers. Isn't that crazy? Yes, yes. Wow, that is amazing. Yes, well, it's not it, June 27th. If that's PTSD National Awareness Day. Yes, that's, tomorrow. That's, that's right. That's what I said, yes. Uh-huh. But, but if it's the 27th, today is the 27th. 
Oh, okay. Maybe it is today. I was thinking it was Wednesday. <laughs> so whatever, I, I think it's, it's this week. I know it's this week, so it might be today. All right. Well, either way, when you, I know that you have to go, um, like essentially now, and um, and so when for the rest of the show, I will be talking to people about PTSD, um, and you know, you led into that very nicely. So I want to well, thank, thank you. you. I want to thank you, Lee Ellis, and I want to um, s- tell people the name of your book again. It's called Captured by Love, and um. It is love stories of Vietnam P- Vietnam War POWs, and um, yes. <laughs> you know if if anybody is having trouble uh, getting getting a guy or getting a woman to commit, uh, get them this book. <laughs> and yes, them you know it's funny. It's funny because people from different angles have really enjoyed it. It was uh, it's been so popular. And uh, by the way. You can go to our website for the book. It's POWromance.com, and you can download the first 50 pages. You can read all about it. Uh, it was uh, the foreword. Gary Sinise and uh, Tony Orlando both did a one-page foreword for it, and we've had a number of famous uh, marriage therapists who've written a lot of books endorse it also. So I think that people would enjoy just going to POWromance.com, and then you can click on a link and order it from whatever bookstore you want. Okay, that sounds good. Um, and I'll repeat it again at the end. And just FYI, um, I've written two books about love. You, I guess you don't. One of them, The first one was called Bad Boys, Why We Love Them, How to Live With Them, and When to Leave Them. And the second one was Bad Girls, Why Men Love Them, and How Good Girls Can Learn Their Secrets. So, oh, great. That sounds wonderful. You know, my wife is 27 years now, 23 years now as a licensed counselor. So the one thing we talk about a lot is human behavior and marriages and relationships. So we're very different, but we share that a lot almost every day. Uh-huh. Thank you for doing that. You're very welcome. And thank you and all the best. And uh, may you and your wife continue a happy marriage to eternity. <laughs> thank thank you. you so much, Carol. We're working on that every day. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And now, uh, folks, we need to take a break. Uh, You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. When we come back, I will talk to you since uh, either today or this week, in any case, is uh, National PTSD Awareness Day someday this week. Um, And so I will talk to you about about PTSD and uh, some of the signs and what you can do about it. And there are, it's not just a POW problem. There really, it really is an increasing problem. So we'll talk more about that in a bit. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the Terrorism Hotline. 
And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today. So contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com A little birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we've been talking about um, Captured by Love, Love Stories of the Vietnam War, POWs, from one. So I just, um, we've been just listening to a POW, an amazing man um, named Lee Ellis. He was a, uh, he went, he rose to the rank. Well, first of all, he was an Air Force, Air Force pilot over Vietnam. And that's how he was ultimately shot down and became a prisoner of war. And then he went back um, into the Air Force and uh, went up to the rank of colonel so now he's a retired colonel in the air force so now one of the things um since this month this week today probably um is national ptsd awareness day let me um segue into this because ptsd you know when people hear ptsd they think of people in war not necessarily pow's of course although of course um they would be most likely to have post-traumatic stress disorder because, you know, that is the most stressful uh, thing that can happen to be captive for years. Um, But it isn't just people with uh, war experiences. It's really, uh, you know, when I tell you about the, the, the criteria, you will see, and, and as a forensic psychiatrist, you know, um, I do a number of cases I've done over the years and will probably still do. <laughs> I mean, probably in the sense of having a kind of case like this. Um, I do civil and criminal cases. So um, a lot of cases, civil cases, um, are situations where people have PTSD from whatever the incident was. So like, for example, if they were mugged or raped or even in a car accident. Um, and so if so if they're the plaintiff in a lawsuit, they allege uh, emotional distress damages and um, PTSD is uh, definitely most often included. Even, you know, I, I was just working on a case um, where the child was bullied in school. I mean, that's happening more and more. And um, and the child had PTSD. So. Um, so some of the symptoms are, well, first of all, the, the number one criteria is um, that you have to have been exposed to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence in one or more of the following ways. So either you directly experience this traumatic event to, to yourself, or you witness the traumatic event, 
or you learn that the traumatic event occurred to a close family member, um, it, or um, you experience repeated or extreme exposure to aversive details of the traumatic event, such as first responders collecting human remains or police officers repeatedly exposed to details of child abuse. Um, so the the key is that you are uh, that you yourself experienced directly or you witnessed um, these kinds of traumatic events, and then and so not everybody though who witnesses these um, kinds of traumatic events um, get PTSD. It has to do with how stable you were before, and it has to do with how traumatic the uh, life-threatening event is and whether it happened to you directly or you just witnessed it. I mean, an example is um, with 9-11, people, um, people who, they, they did studies on this and they found out that people who watched um, news of 9-11, particularly the two twin towers being hit and falling on 9-11, um, people who watched it repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly got PTSD, even if they didn't live in New York or they had nothing to do, you know, personally, they didn't know anybody who um, was affected by 9-11 uh, directly. I mean, we've all been affected by 9-11, but, um, but especially if they watch these uh, repeated pictures, you know, video, television of this event. Then also, their next set of criteria has to do with um, intrusion symptoms. They're called intrusion symptoms. And those are things like um, having intrusive, distressing memories of the traumatic event, whatever the traumatic event is. Again, it could be a war situation or it could be a car accident or a rape or, or something like that, whatever the trauma is. You keep thinking about it again and again and again. You dream about it. You have nightmares about it. Um, you can have flashbacks about it where you think that it's happening again right at that moment. Um, you can, when you see things that remind you of the trauma, you get intense uh, psychological distress. And you can also get what physiological reactions. In other words, breathing faster, your heart starts beating when you see something that reminds you of the trauma. Then also there's a, a, um, a group of symptoms that come under the heading of avoidance. You're trying to avoid um, remembering these the, the trauma. So like, for example, if someone is in a car accident and it's very traumatic, they avoid the area where they had the car accident. You know, they may go miles around, like let's say it was on the way to work, but they find another way to go to work, even if they have to go miles out of their way to avoid going through that same corner. Same thing, avoiding um, to reminders of people, places, uh, and so on. And then also there are different um, changes in your thinking and in your mood that are associated with the trauma. Um, things like um, you have, you may have negative beliefs about yourself, such as, and or the world, such as I am bad, no one can be trusted, the world is completely dangerous, and so on. And um, feelings of detachment, feelings of um, having a hard time feeling positive emotions like love, 
um, not wanting to participate in things that you used to have fun participating in, um, being in a, a, a persistent negative state like fear or horror and so on. I'm kind of um, trying to get through all of these. So I'm speaking quickly. Um, then another character, another uh, group of characteristics of symptoms are where there's uh, marked changes in arousal and reactivity. So for example, you might have irritable behavior, angry outbursts with little or no provocation, reckless or self-destructive behavior, uh, hypervigilance, which is being very, um, looking at your environment very carefully, have an, an exaggerated startle response, and so on. I can't, I haven't, you know, I have no time to read all of them. Problem sleeping is another one, but you get the gist. So don't think that you're going crazy if after some major trauma, um, you are feeling some of these things. Now, let me give uh, you the name again or how you can find the book that my guest Lee Ellis was talking about. It's powromance.com, powromance.com. Um, and there are some very interesting things on that website as well. So uh, you've gotten a taste <laughs> and now uh, it's very tempting to read the whole thing, you know, to read the stories in full and to read other stories and uh, to be reminded of this is how love used to be. <laughs> it didn't used to be swipe, swipe right or swipe left. It was where you would stay around, not even being sure that your husband or your lover was alive, um, but, but having such a strong love that you were willing to wait. Well, thank you for listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.